You know, as we've been going through Isaiah, we've been following sort of this messianic uh, thread as Isaiah has been revealing it to us. Of course, Isaiah is not the only prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, We find the messianic thread actually begins in Genesis chapter 3. It's woven throughout Genesis. We see it uh, in the book of Numbers. We see it in uh, Joshua. We see it in uh, a lot in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. But of course, as soon as the prophets come on the scene, uh, they just begin to add all of these details. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I told you, you know, if you were to imagine a blank canvas, and that as you are given details from the scriptures, you would, as it were, you know, add those to the canvas. And then each time you find something, you apply it to the canvas. And over time, you would begin to develop, as it were, a portrait and of who the Messiah is, where he would be born, what he would do, uh, the nature of his conception and birth, uh, his, his identity, both eternal and then uh, in the flesh, and all of that stuff. And uh, eventually you just have this portrait of, of, of what can only be one person in history. Uh, you know, many of the Jews, the Orthodox, are still looking for Messiah to come in his first advent, uh, but it's actually impossible for him to come in his first advent now because of the details of Israel, the temple, and so many other features. And so the only person that could possibly be the Messiah uh, of the scriptures is Christ. And um, so very interesting stuff. Um, So this information so far that we've gathered on Messiah, just as a refresher, I just want to name about 14, 15 things. And scholars have um, said that there's over 300 uh, messianic prophecies that when you combine them uh, regarding his first and his second coming, uh, I'm not going to do all of that now. Uh, But I thought I'd mention a few, at least the ones that we've talked about in Isaiah. We know that this Messiah, uh, and if you imagine that you were, you know, uh, in Israel uh, in the, the eighth century, and you have access to Isaiah's book, uh, and you would be itemizing and cataloging all of the details about Messiah. These are the things that you would be looking for. Uh, this person would be a man. We learned that in chapter 9. He'd be from the lineage of Jesse. Uh, that's the father of David. So you can add to that the tribe of Judah, chapter 11. He's conceived and born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. He would be God with us, God in the flesh. Uh, the, it says he shall be called Emmanuel chapter 7. He is mighty God, chapter 9. He would sit on his father David's throne, chapter 9. Global authority would rest upon his shoulders, chapter 9. He will be empowered by God's spirit to fulfill his mission, chapter 11. And his reign would be characterized by righteousness and wisdom. Um, That would be new, wouldn't it? A king with righteousness and wisdom. Um, Chapter 9, he shall judge the earth, chapter 11, he shall slay the wicked, chapter 11, he will restore peace to the earth, chapter 11, he will reign forever, chapter 9, he'll be the person who Isaiah saw seated on his throne high and lifted up, chapter 6. The reason that we know that is because John tells us that in John 12, 39 through uh, 43, that when Isaiah had his vision of uh, the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, uh, he says, that was Christ. That was Christ. 
So you think about that vision of God's glory, and then you think of the incarnation, all that he stepped away from in order to become one of us and then to give himself for us. So, so far in the book of Isaiah, there have been a few references to his first coming, but most of the information that we've gotten from Isaiah concerns his second coming. Now, as I said last week, it wasn't revealed to the prophets that there would be two different advents or two different comings of the Messiah. Uh, They were simply told, and and with great detail, uh, who he would be, what he would do, and that he was coming. That's what they were told, okay? So when we study messianic prophecy, we find within the same prophecy references of both his first coming and his second coming. Sometimes what describes his first coming is divided only by a comma from what describes his second coming. Now that could be difficult to parse out without hindsight, couldn't it? It could be difficult. And as I said, because of this very thing, some of the ancient uh, scholars, rabbis, speculated that there would be two messiahs because they're trying to make sense of how the messiah could both die and reign forever. Dead men don't reign forever, okay? And uh, so they were trying to figure all this out. Uh, but now, of course, we know from the rest of Revelation, hey, our parking lot is good for anything these days. So uh, racing, whatever. So trying to figure all that out at that time was very difficult. Of course, now we have the advantage. As we go through Isaiah, we're going to get many, many more details. So tonight, we're going to cover chapter 13 through 24. How many is that? 11? Could be a record for me. Yeah. So the judgment of the nations. And so, as I said, this is going to be an overview of um, the judgment of those nations, uh, but not too much exposition, but enough to just kind of represent the content, what happened, rather what was prophesied, and then what actually happened in history. Uh, some of the, the predictions happened within Isaiah's time. Most of them happened uh, sometime, short time after his death. Okay. So what is interesting about all of this, these nations that are being judged are nations that have been a curse to Israel. And you probably remember the promise from Genesis chapter 12. God said, I will curse those who curse you. And that promise then was extended to Abraham's descendants. And so that's Israel. And as you look through the history of Israel, God indeed has cursed those who have cursed Israel. And that's um, God fulfilling his promise. But also, uh, we won't be talking about the judgment of Israel tonight. But we do know that the northern kingdom was taken captive, scattered by the Assyrians. And Assyria, of course, tried to do that with Jerusalem, but God had not called Assyria to do that, so they failed. And then later on, Babylon came, and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and they took the Jews captive. <clears throat> and so uh, Israel was, uh, was disciplined as well. Now, that is also according to promise. God always keeps his word. And, but, but Israel, <clears throat> the Jews, being blessed in the land of Israel was contingent upon their obedience to the law, their loyalty to God. And God said, if you stray, if you dishonor me, my law, he says, I will make sure that the land vomits you out. And then I will take you captive into a foreign land by the people of a stammering lips. 
uh, people they don't understand, and I will judge you accordingly. So <clears throat> we're not going to talk about that tonight, but we, we want to make sure that we understand that God in his justice does not somehow leave Israel out when they're worthy of judgment. Amen? Okay. So God kept his promise. All right. Um, so we're going to talk about the, these nation and city-states that are judged, but also uh, then Isaiah will then jump way forward, and he'll talk about the judgments of the entire earth. Very interesting. Okay. So the order of judgments pronounced <clears throat> in these chapters is Babylon is first, uh, chapter 13 and 21, Assyria, chapter 14 and 18, Felicia, chapter 14, Moab, chapter 15 and 16. I'll repeat this when we get to them. Damascus, chapter 17, Egypt and Cush. Uh, it's better to say Cush. Some translations say Ethiopia. Um, it's actually Cush, and Cush was more than Ethiopia. Cush was, at that time, at the southern end of Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. Okay? Um, so the borders that we have today are not the same as they've always been. All right? And then Tyre and Sidon, and then that's chapter 23, and then the whole earth, chapter 24. What is interesting also is that uh, within these prophecies of judgment, uh, there's also some promises of restoration, of course, for Israel, but also for Egypt, and as well as Assyria, chapter 19, okay? Um, and as we go through these, you'll notice that Assyria is the primary tool in God's hand to execute his judgment. So what we talk about is indirect or instrumental judgment. God doesn't always intervene directly with his own hands. He uses things uh, to ex execute his, um, his will on planet Earth. And most of these uh, nations are judged by Assyria. Of course, until we get to Assyria and somebody else has to be God's arm in that what you see, God says, uh, essentially to Assyria, because what they'll do is they'll go too far. God says, I've appointed you, I've ordained you to judge this particular people group, this nation, and no further. But what happens is, of course, Assyria gets greedy for power, greedy for wealth, and so they, they think to themselves, we've succeeded thus far, so let's go further. And so they go down to Judah, and God says, whoa, I didn't appoint this. So uh, if you do this, you're dead. And uh, we'll cover some of that later. So anyway, uh, that didn't succeed. And so God then brought the Babylonians to come and then judge the Assyrians. And then the Babylonians went too far in their mockery of the Jews. And so God brought the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians, that didn't work out, so he brought the Greeks. The Greeks didn't work out, so he brought the Romans, and then so on and so forth. And so God, as Daniel says, does what he wants in the kingdoms of men. No one can stay his hand, right? Okay. Even in America, by the way, he raises up kings and he sets them down at his pleasure. So, but anyway, the majority of nations mentioned here suffer God's wrath at the hand of the Assyrians. <clears throat> so let's take a brief look at Babylon, uh, who actually becomes probably the most common subject as far as a, a city uh, in prophecy, both at that time and then in, eschatologically in the end times. So this is what 
he says. It's Isaiah 13. Um, now, real quick, before Babylon rose to the zenith of its power under Nebuchadnezzar, that is in the early 7th century, it was initially laid waste by the Assyrians in 689 B.C. It was rebuilt, of course, only to become one of the most powerful empires uh, the world has ever seen. Now, as far as a world leader, uh, Nebuchadnezzar seems to trump everything because Nebuchadnezzar had final say in absolutely everything. Okay, and Daniel even says that in Daniel chapter 2. And then you notice, you know, the multi-metallic statue. Next is, you know, the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar, and then the, the, the chest and shoulder and arms of silver, that's Medo-Persia. Well, when we get into uh, both Daniel's narrative and you get into the, the, the chronicles of history, we learn that the kings of, of the Medes and the Persians, they didn't have absolute power like Nebuchadnezzar did. They had to consolidate, they had to you know, bring their leaders together, and then uh, decisions had to be approved. And that, that, that power within one leader just decreases uh, from Nebuchadnezzar down uh, all the way to the Roman Empire. And then you have, of course, the Senate, and everybody's, you have more, um, the, more of the balance of power and so forth. So Babylon rose up and was this, it was a mighty, mighty kingdom. But even that did not last long. In 539 BC, we know it fell to the Medes. Uh, that's Daniel chapter 5. And then again to the Greeks, that's 330 BC. Uh, that's Alexander the Great, just as Daniel 2 foretold. And of course, as the world has witnessed throughout history. Now, that was BC. Uh, it will rise again uh, in some fashion. It's difficult to know, but just as John the Apostle reveals to us in the apocalypse, okay? But it will subsequently fall forever. Some of that is alluded to in Isaiah 13, uh, ultimately at the end of time. Uh, Babylon will be completely annihilated, never to be inhabited again. Now, it's interesting as we look at Babylon in prophecy that its fall is mentioned frequently and often no reference to time is given. There's just no time stamps at all. Uh, just that destruction is eventually going to happen. Now, as we've said about the, the prophets when they prophesy about Christ, it, it just says that he's coming. And it doesn't say there's going to be a first coming or a second coming. Babylon kind of gets treated that way in prophecy. We know that Babylon will fall. We know that it's already fallen. We know that it's risen. We know that it's going to fall again and rise and then eventually be totally done. We just don't know how it's going to play out in world history. Um, another thing about Babylon that is so interesting is that it represents uh, world rebellion. It represents the rebellion of man, uh, both in just disobedience of God and then idolatry. You remember it was at Babel in Genesis chapter 11 that all of the people, they congregated together. What was the problem with that? After the flood, God said, cover the earth, scatter and fill the earth. But they said, let's stay together. So that was rebellion against God. And then what they did was they fashioned what we could say is a one world religion right there in Babel. Now, archaeology has revealed that the Tower of Babel, which was a ziggurat, have you guys ever heard that term? A ziggurat, it's a, it's a, it's a temple that's, you know, stepped, okay? Uh, like all other ziggurats in the Middle East, around the world, uh, that these ziggurats are dedicated to astrology, 
which involved human sacrifice, okay, and other cultic practices. Now, of course, God, as we know from the, the, the narrative, that God slowed their rebellion by confusing their languages, and then men were forced to separate from one another just to make society function, okay? But like the flood, uh, that did not cure man's rebellion. It just slowed it down. And so from Babylon, all peoples, they began to scatter across the earth. But what they were doing is they were practicing their same forms of idolatry, but they were just referring to their deities and their practices with different terms. It's very interesting. Uh, how many do you guys have a Bible encyclopedia? So if you get a Bible encyclopedia, uh, if you get an Encyclopedia Britannica, and you start looking up the gods of Rome, the gods of Greece, the gods of Canaan, Mesopotamia, and <clears throat> Egypt, and all that, catalog them in order, give their descriptions of the god, goddess, and the worship, and then compare them with all of the other ones. You'll find out that they have many, many more similarities than differences. It's because all of it came from Babylon and then spread out. They're speaking different languages, so they call those deities by different names. But when you, when you read the description of how they were worshipped and what they were gods of, you find out this is the same god, worshipped the same way, just called something different. So paganism across the planet has more things in common than differences. Uh, many people don't realize that ziggurats, the original temple made by the rebellion of man, they're found on every continent but Antarctica. And it wouldn't surprise me that as that continent melts away, that there'll be a ziggurat there, okay? And uh, it's very interesting. And all of the worship uh, involved at these ziggurats are very, very similar. So people just left Babylon, they took their religion with them and called it something different. So just as Babylon stood as a symbol of rebellion against God early in world history, it will maintain that role in the end. We learn that in Revelation. Here's what John says in Revelation 17. He says, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now in the prophets, harlotry was not literally um, prostitution. It was idolatry. It was idolatry. So Babylon is represented as the mother of idolatry. She gave birth to all of the idolatrous practices, uh, all false religion in the world. Um, I have a chart actually somewhere where you have all of the gods and the worship of them uh, compared to other religions throughout the world. Uh, it's very creepy. They're all essentially the same. All right, Assyria, the arm of God's judgment. Isaiah 14 verses 24 through 27. Now, it is interesting that you know, not much is said about Assyria as far as their judgment, but they're mentioned all over when it comes to judging these other nations. The capital was Nineveh, was Nineveh. Now, imagine if Jonah was actually successful for generations. They would not have been able to be the arm of God's judgment, but they repented for a time, and then, of course, they went back into their idolatrous ways. So Nineveh, now the prophecy consists of four verses in chapter 14, uh, but the pronouncement of judgment is clear. God promised to break the Assyrian, he says, in my land, referring to the, the nation of Israel. This is cool because, you know, as we've said, Israel was used by God to judge the northern kingdom of Israel, but not the southern. 
But Israel grew greedy for power, for wealth, and all of that. They went to take Jerusalem. But while Jerusalem was under siege, we know that the angel of the Lord slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in one night. They came to the wrong city, okay? It says the people woke up and the bodies were scattered about the land, 2 Kings 19.35. And then here in Isaiah 37, he talks about it in verse 36. And so what happened is afterward, the king, of course, uh, he says, probably not a good thing to stay. So he heads back to Nineveh. A couple years later, he's in the temple of his God. He's worshiping, and his own sons come and assassinate him. And then that is the beginning of the rapid decline of the Assyrian Empire. 609 BC, uh, the Babylonians um, the Babylonians finished them off. Got all kinds of fun stuff tonight. What about Felicia? Felicia, Acts, not Acts, Isaiah 14, verse 28 through 32. Now, the Philistines, of course, were the coastal uh, people in southwest Canaan, uh, the longtime enemy of Israel. Uh, they were laid waste in 711 BC by the Assyrians, after which they were never a problem again. In fact, the Philistines as a people group were absorbed into all of their foes. They're no longer an ethnic group on planet Earth. Have you ever met a Philistine? I didn't think so. Now, what is very interesting historically about this is that the Latin term for Felicia, does anybody know what it is? Palestina, Palestina. The Romans renamed the land of Israel after Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines, to mock them. To mock them. Today we say Palestine, and with it has been invented an entire people group called the Palestinians. But the Palestinians today are actually Arabs. There is no such thing as a Palestinian, as a people group. Okay? Uh, it has become a people group for political reasons, uh, and mostly to leverage and manipulate the UN. Uh, but the, the history behind all of that is very, very interesting. So those people, uh, they are not Philistines because that's what Palestinian is in the Latin, okay? And what is uh, crazy is that if you went to Israel uh, or you looked at a birth certificate from Israel pre-1948 and the person was a Jew, guess what they were called? A Palestinian, yeah. What? Yeah, it's so strange. But history is what it is. If you uh, are to take this onto YouTube, you will be blocked if you give that real history. You can advance the 1619 project, which is completely false history, but if you bring the true history of, uh, of Palestine in regard to the current um, situation, you'll be banned. So it's too insensitive to be truthful. What about Moab? Not to be confused with Moab, Utah. How many of you guys have been to Moab, Utah? Yeah, it's one of my favorite places in the world. The biking, the rock climbing... It's amazing down there. It's beautiful, uh, all of that red sandstone. And then if you go, <clears throat> when they get uh, just a frosting of snow on that desert landscape, it is gorgeous. So go to Moab. But don't go in July, end of June, July, or August, because every jeeper, biker, rock climber, it's the Mecca for all of that in America. People from Europe... And uh, so go early June. It might be a little chillier, but you can get around and see like um, the fiery furnace. You can go to Gemini, 
all that stuff. It's a great place. But that's not this place. Isaiah 15 and 16. Of course, another enemy of Israel, even from early times, you remember as Israel was completing their wilderness wandering, they'd come to Moab, and uh, the king there had sent the young women down there to tempt uh, the Israelite men. They'd become a curse to them. And, uh, and then all throughout Israel's history, through the book of Judges, First uh, and Second uh, Samuel, Kings, all of that, they were just a problem for Israel. Um, but they also met their doom in 701 BC when the Assyrians uh, conquered them uh, during their uh, attempt to take Jerusalem. Okay? Also, like the Philistines, the Moabite people are no more. The people that live there today, again, are Arabs, the Arab people. What about Damascus? How many guys have been to Damascus? Of course, prior to the Syrian issue of today. Has anybody been to Damascus? So before the war, Damascus was a place commonly visited by Hollywood. Damascus is one of the oldest cities in the world. Um, the architecture, is, it's, it was amazing. I mean, it's been so destroyed at this point. But if you go search for images of Damascus prior to the war, you'll see all kinds of Hollywood people there, all kinds of Hollywood people. But the, <clears throat> the, 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 the crafts that are there, they're ancient crafts. It's, it's traditions that are thousands of years old. Uh, the culture, so many different things there in Damascus. Uh, it's such a beautiful city, um, but not a good subject in prophecy. So, yeah, so um, the cap- the, Damascus was the capital of Aram, and they suffered their defeat in 72 B.C., uh, also by the Assyrians, just as Isaiah predicted. Um, yeah, today it's a mess. If you look at images today, it just you see the that old architecture in rubbles, and some of that architecture is so old, so beautiful, so sad. Just the nature of war. Um, <clears throat> yeah, what else is, do we know about Damascus? Some important event happened on the way there. Acts 9, that's right, Paul was converted. All right, Egypt, Ethiopia, Cush, Isaiah 18 through 20. Um, These two nations were never a friend of Israel. There's some bad blood, of course, uh, there. Uh, Not even at the time of Isaiah, when Israel, Egypt, and Cush had Assyria uh, as their common enemy. So what had happened was those two nations tried to form an alliance with Israel because they knew that Assyria was trying to expand its borders, its kingdom, and they were heading south. So they wanted, of course, Israel to be a buffer and uh, to diminish the numbers of the Assyrians, wear them out, and hopefully they would never make it to the south. But they tried to form an alliance. The alliance did not work out. And instead, um, of course, we know Judah was spared, but then the Assyrians went down, and they just decimated Egypt and Cush, In fact, Isaiah says, as history is confirmed, the people were led into captivity barefoot and they cut their garments so high that their backside could be seen. And then they marched them clear into um, the north, Damascus, Nineveh, and all of that. So, yep. So, Esar Hadan, that was the king of Assyria, conquered them in 671 BC. And Assyria was... They had it going on for a while, didn't they? Yeah. 
What about Tyre and Sidon? Have you guys ever studied any of the prophecies regarding Tyre and Sidon? Famous prophecies. Uh, not so much from Isaiah, but elsewhere. <clears throat> this is Isaiah 23. Uh, these two cities were in Phoenicia. They were port cities. They were known for their trade on the sea. They believe that, because there's all this talk about their trade with Tarshish. They believe that Tarshish is southern Spain. So even that far back in history, they believe there was all this trade going throughout all of the Mediterranean. Uh, these cities were extremely idolatrous. They were very wealthy. <coughs> and throughout all of prophecy, they're mentioned as being pompous. In 701, uh, Assyria conquered them, and they installed Ethbaal II to just rule over them. But just as Isaiah predicted, it was only for 70 years, okay, until 630 B.C., after which they were basically fully restored to their former glory, at least until Nebuchadnezzar came and he laid siege to the city. Look, he, he had them under siege from 587 to 574. They were pretty tough too. Now, Nebuchadnezzar eventually managed to destroy the cities on the coast, but he failed to take the island city of Tyre. He failed. The island was left for Alexander the Great. Do you guys know the story? So Alexander's armies were coming down the coast. The, the, the mainland city was just some herdsmen and some fishermen and things like that. There was nothing really to it. <clears throat> but he wanted the island city of Tyre, and they began to mock uh, Alexander the Great, apparently not knowing Alexander. So what he did was he, his, his army began to, to push rocks into the ocean, and they did this until they formed a land bridge all the way to the island up against the walls of the city. And then they brought their war machines all the way out on this, and then they, they took the city. If you look at satellite imagery, you can still see the land bridge today. It's underwater now, but you can still see it. That dude left his mark on planet Earth, okay? Uh, it's a crazy story in history, all prophesied uh, in the scriptures. Interesting stuff. All right, <clears throat> here's the biggie, of course, chapter 24. So Isaiah's attention is drawn from the immediate future to the distant. He's no longer concerned about the, you know, the, the, the regional issues, but with a global one, a global one. The problem is this, globally, verse 5 says, the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Now, we look around planet Earth and we can obviously say that we have defiled it with every form of immorality and idolatry. <clears throat> Paul talks about those who are inventors of evil things. Uh, I don't know what they were doing in the first century, but I don't think they hold a candle now to what we do in Western culture. We are the ultimate inventors of evil things, especially right now with what we're doing to our young people and transitional, gender transitional stuff, um, just completely insane. Now, the reference to the everlasting covenant cannot refer to the covenant of Moses because it was never presented to the whole world for them to either keep or break. It was only given to ethnic Israel. You look in the Old Testament and God and the people of God never imposed the covenant on people outside the borders of Israel. And even 
foreigners that came into Israel only had to abide by a few things. One of those things was they weren't allowed to do business on the Sabbath. That's that great story in Nehemiah, is when Nehemiah returned to Israel, was trying to you know, maintain some order, he found that some of the foreigners were selling goods at the gate of the city on the Sabbath. And you remember, he came and he, he leaned over the wall and he says, if I see you here on the next Sabbath, I will lay hands on you. And he does not mean he's going to go pray for them. Okay? So it cannot be the, the, the covenant of Moses. Okay, that was for ethnic Israel. The only covenant that was presented to the world was the new covenant, which was communicated and has been communicated to all nations through the preaching of the gospel. But by and large, this covenant has been and will be rejected by the world, which means they will reject the only possible way of salvation. They're going to reject God and his only provision. There is no greater sin. At the time of this judgment, Isaiah says, no one will go untouched. No believer will, no unbeliever rather, will escape. He says the population of the earth will dwindle almost to nothing. He says every source of joy will vanish. There's going to be war, famine, and earthquakes. He says that the earth, because of God's judgment, will reel like a drunkard. Imagine what that is like. Yeah. Perhaps verse 21 and 22 are the most fascinating passages in this prophecy. It says this, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth, the kings of the earth. They, together, that is, will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days, they will be punished. Listen to the language of that. At that time, the Lord will capture, he will punish the fallen host of heaven, that's Satan and his angels, and he'll punish the kings of the earth with them. But initially, he will incarcerate them together. Now, it's interesting. These two groups are also mentioned as allies in Revelation 19.19 as they come against the Lord at his return. So you have wicked, angelic government, and you have wicked human government are going to be incarcerated together in the pit. And then it says, then, after many days, they will be punished. Isn't that crazy to think about? Yeah. Something else that's interesting. Revelation 20 says that Satan will be bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. Afterward, he will be let out for a final rebellion. It'll be his last attempt to defeat God. It will fail. And Satan, everyone who sides with him, will then be cast in the lake of fire where they receive their just penalty. Indeed, his punishment followed many days of incarceration. He will be thrown into the bottom of bottomless pit for a thousand years. At the end of that time, he will be let out, rebellion, and then he will be punished. Now, it's very interesting, I think, because uh, this whole chapter in Isaiah reads like many places in Revelation, especially chapter 18 and 20. In fact, the prophecy makes more sense in light of Revelation, in light of it. Uh, I think Isaiah 24 is really just an overview of the apocalypse. This whole issue of the, the rebellious hosts, that is, angels, being incarcerated with man. You remember what Jesus said? He said that, that hell was not originally created for man. 
He was created for Satan and his angels. But when humanity followed in the steps of Satan, it became the final resting place, not resting, the final abode of the wicked. Interesting times ahead. Yeah? Yeah. So there you have the judgment of the nations that surrounded Israel that were a curse to them. And we have the final judgment of the world when Christ returns to claim the Davidic throne. Now, in chapter 25 through 27, as I said, there's this song. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's prophesied that in the future, after these events of world judgment, that this song will be sung. Now, the song is great because it talks about the resurrection of the righteous and the abolishment of death. All of that will be celebrated in song. Now, that's important because when it comes to the resurrection itself, there's only a few references in all of the Old Testament. And this is, that's one of them in Isaiah. There's one in Job. David makes a reference. Isaiah makes a reference. And then Daniel does. I believe that's all of them. Yeah, so we'll study that. We'll look at the, the song. Right, if you have questions about tonight's teaching, I know that it was a lot. And uh, you'll remember it all. And um, yeah, I think you'll like the song better because um, we're probably going to be singing it someday. Go ahead and stand up. I'll get you out of here. Well, Father, again, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, nothing that you have said in your word will go undone. It'll happen exactly as you foretold. And, um, And Lord, for that, we're grateful that you know the end from the beginning, that you're sovereignly leading all things to your intended, revealed end. And Lord, I believe in the same manner my life falls into that, as do the lives of all of your people. And Lord, I also just lift up again to Isaac, pray that you'd grant him good rest tonight, and that by morning he would wake refreshed and um, ready to go home to be with his family. Continue to be with his family, and just assure them, Lord, of your goodness. So thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.